Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, from London at the conclusion of the DSCI trade show, the world's largest defense exhibition. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. In Congress, the defense appropriations bill is in trouble as life under a continuing resolution and a government shutdown are likely. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy begins impeachment proceedings against President Biden to save his own jobs. Ukraine's offensive is gaining ground as Kiev increasingly strikes Russian targets, apparently destroying a diesel electric submarine and a large amphibious ship as Vladimir Putin met in Moscow with Kim Jong-un to get more ammunition for his war against Ukraine. The Biden administration wrapped up a breakneck series of meetings across Asia, from President Biden's G20 and Vietnam trips to Vice President Harris's engagement with ASEAN leaders. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the president of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend with the Center for a New American Security, and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back to the program. Wouldn't be Friday uh, without you all. Michael, uh, wow, what a, what a week. Uh, and if only we could uh, we could devote an entire hour to this program, but unfortunately we can't do that. Uh, tell us why the defense appropriations uh, bill is in trouble. Okay, well I know we've got a lot of ground to cover, and I think uh, you know the Russian and Chinese leaders are you know quaking in their boots with fear as they watch the U.S. Congress unable to pass a defense funding bill and also threaten to shut down their own government, which of course will be followed by a continuing resolution, which will continue to hurt the military by slowing down R&D and procurement. But you know the countdown continues. Right now we have 15 days until the government runs out of money and it's just 18, eight legislative days. But you know this week uh, the House was hoping to pass the defense uh, appropriations bill. Uh, and it became clear by midweek that they couldn't even get the bill to the floor because they didn't have enough votes to support the rule, which governs debate. Uh, and even if they did uh, get on the floor, they did not have enough votes to pass the bill. And you know, this, again, comes from opposition from the Freedom Caucus. And it's despite the fact that they made a very large number of those amendments in order that we talked about last week. They would have had a chance to vote uh, to cut Lloyd Austin's salary down to, to, to $1. Uh, they could have voted on ending security assistance to Ukraine uh, and blocking uh, funding for DEI initiatives and observance of Pride Month. But you know that didn't seem uh, to matter. So uh, McCarthy had to pull uh, the bill and the rule from consideration. And if you recall, you know, right before the August recess, McCarthy had to do this with the agriculture appropriations bill. So this shows that they've really made very little progress uh, trying to overcome uh, the issues they have with with their with the, with the Freedom Caucus. Uh, now uh, on Wednesday, the new plan was that McCarthy would try and combine uh, the defense bill with the uh, Homeland Security bill and the Milcon VA bill and uh, disaster relief uh, put on top of that. Uh, but then by Wednesday night, that plan uh, was thrown out the window. And it's really unclear what the Freedom Caucus wants. You know, we've talked week after week about all the demands they continue to, to, to make. And, you know, if you saw, I mean, the, the, the debt deal that was cut earlier this year, where I, th I feel the Democrats made extraordinary concessions, was designed to avoid all this. It was to put these numbers in place so we wouldn't have a shutdown for two years, that we'd be able to pass all 12 appropriations bills because we had numbers that were agreed upon. Graham Caucus, uh, in the end, didn't like those numbers. Uh, McCarthy went back on the deal and said that that deal was a floor, not a ceiling, or a ceiling, not a floor. Um, and then he agreed to mark to the FY22 levels. Apparently, that's still not enough uh, for the Freedom Caucus. Uh, they're looking for not only additional cuts, but they're insisting on a lot of the demands that we've talked about, but specifically a uh, big push to get their border security legislation passed. It's H.R. 2. Now, H.R. 2 has already passed the House, so it doesn't matter if they pass it again. It's, it's not going to be able to pass the Senate. It would never be signed to law by the president. Um, you know, Democrats feel that the bill is way too draconian because it would cut off uh, nearly all access to humanitarian uh, protections. It would make processing less efficient. Uh, and it would strict Department of Homeland Security's you know, parole authority. So it's just not, not going to happen. Um, so House Freedom Caucus Chairman um, Scott Perry said, you know, he hasn't spoken to McCarthy uh, and he has no plans to meet with him again, but we've got you know plenty of time. I'm not so sure two weeks is plenty of time. Meantime, uh, Matt Gates has amped up his pressure on McCarthy. He took to the floor 
uh, to say that the speaker is out of compliance with the agreement uh, that allowed him to assume the role of speaker and that the path forward uh, for him in the House is that he break, that he gets into immediate and total compliance or that they will uh, remove him. Uh, so, you know, and, and, and we thought that things were going well in the Senate until this week uh, after voting you know, 91 to 7 to advance the bipartisan package we talked about of three FY24 uh, spending bills. Uh, both Patty Murray and Susan Collins sought to get unanimous consent uh, to start voting on amendments. And we, we talked about the fact previously that the Senate works through unanimous consent. They had 10 amendments to the Milcon VA Ag and Transportation HUD uh, minibus that were five Republican amendments and five Democratic amendments. But two Republican senators, Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin and Senator Mike Braun from Indiana, have objected, uh, saying that they uh, want the minibus broken up into three uh, separate spending bills, that the process is uh, clouded and cloaked, they say. Uh, Senator Collins, who's the Republican ranking member on that committee, reminded them that all three bills reported unanimously at the Appropriations Committee, So, but that doesn't seem to matter. So appropriations in both the House uh, and the Senate right now are at a complete standstill. Uh, and uh, the continuing resolution uh, and shutdown, or maybe shutdown and continuing resolution, how are you gaming it and what are the factors? I think uh, a shutdown is extremely likely. Uh, it, um, uh, and we've been saying this now for several weeks. Uh, now McCarthy has pivoted yet again and plans to put a CR on the floor next week of the House. Uh, so we have two legislative weeks left. So he's trying to get out in front of this. I spoke to leadership yesterday to say, OK, if a CR is on the floor next week, what's in it? Is it funding the government at FY23 levels or FY22 levels? Uh, does it include disaster relief? Does it include Ukraine aid? Uh, does it include money for the border? Uh, and leadership has no idea. Uh, and and you know, Frame Cox has made clear they're not going to vote for CR unless all their demands are made. And many of them seem to be rooting for shutdown and telling us that there will be a shutdown. Uh, so McCarthy really has you know very few good options. I mean, he could put a clean CR on the floor next week. Um, but that would not get support from the Freedom Caucus. And then there could be a vote to oust him as speaker. Uh, he could put a CR on the floor that has all the things the Freedom Caucus wants in it that may not even be able to pass the House. And if it does, it's dead on arrival in the Senate. Uh, and then you know the Senate could send their own CR over uh, to try and jam the House. And if McCarthy were to take it up, uh, again, he puts the speakership uh, at risk. So uh, there are really no uh, good options at this point. And I think they literally are just trying to make it up uh, day by day as they, as they go along. Um, I know we're going to talk about you know, impeachment in a second, uh, but I want to just mention two things that I think the the Democrats did wrong this week. Because I don't, I want to be even handed here, right? I think right. Uh, uh, there's there's uh, apparently there has been a change in uh, policy over DOD uh, to use gender neutral language for all decorations uh, and citations. And every Democratic member of the House Armed Services Committee I spoke to about this week was flabbergasted by this and had no idea. And uh, uh, Senator Tom Cotton wrote a letter to Secretary uh, Austin uh, about this, you know, basically saying that, uh, you know, he understands that they're going to use gender, gender neutral terms in citations and awards to use the term themselves, which is not even a word. So a citation would say Jane or John Doe distinguished themselves uh, by superior meritorious service. And that the previous guidance uh, simply referred to service members of, as himself or herself. And, you know, Senator Cotton says he wants to stress that this language isn't referring to unspecified personnel in the abstract or large numbers of troops. It refers to a specific named person whose preferred gender is presumably known. And he's exactly right. Uh, and I think this is, this is a, a terrible move by the department. And it continues to stoke the, the, the culture wars on Capitol Hill. Uh, and this is something that I think uh, the Democrats have a hard time defending. And, and, and Cotton ends his letter, you know, basically saying, I would also welcome reply that this whole episode is just a practical joke or a decision you immediately reversed uh, when it came to your attention. Um, right. You know, the, the second thing is, I think I know we're probably not going to talk much about Tupperville this week, but there haven't been much progress there. But you know, the, the, I think it was unnecessary for the Pentagon press secretary during a press conference uh, this week to say that now the that the August recess is over, that the defense secretary plans to, to conduct calls with senators uh, to speak to them and urge Tupperville to reverse his hold. Um, you know, I think that that makes it seem like they did nothing over the last five weeks and that phones didn't work in the Pentagon over five weeks. Right. Uh, I think that's they really should have said we were going to continue to work on this important, important issue. So uh, I think those are two things that the administration, especially the department, uh, are handling uh, poorly. 
I find it fascinating how the timing of some administrations is just poor. This was not the time uh, to put that out. And also uh, to try to be a little bit better in your overall messaging, right? That we're working this issue, uh, you know, uh, uh, over and over again. Dove, you have a, a quick uh, point uh, you want to make because we've got to get to impeachment uh, and then uh, both uh, to Jim uh, as well as Patrick. Uh, go ahead, Dove. Yeah, uh, just to say that this nonsense uh, that uh, Michael was just talking about themselves and all that is simply going to stiffen Tupperville's back because he believes that he's fighting all this woke stuff in the department. And uh, instead of trying to weaken him, uh, what this does is simply convince him that the department is flouting all sorts of uh, practices and laws and he's going to hold out even more. So I think it was not just a tactical mistake. It was a strategic mistake. Michael, uh, really quick uh, on uh, impeachment, because uh, I'm here in London and a lot of folks have been asking me about what the merits uh, of this are. What are the merits of it? Uh, aside from the fact that, uh, as you've discussed, it takes one to vacate uh, the speaker and the speaker wants to protect his job. Yeah, that's true. Although I was surprised that the announcement uh, to launch an impeachment inquiry was announced this week, because I also think that um, you know McCarthy has lost uh, a lifeline that he would also need from the Democrats to help bail him out of the mess we just talked about. But you know there was a meeting among the uh, House Republican Conference yesterday morning uh, after this announcement was made uh, to talk about the status of the investigation, and this is being led by uh, Jim Jordan, who chairs the Judiciary Committee and uh, Jim Comer, who uh, chairs the Oversight Committee. Uh, and they feel that they've uncovered enough evidence uh, that necessitates the House formalizing uh, an impeachment inquiry. And what this is really all about is that just before the 2020 election, Joe Biden uh, and his campaign said that his son Hunter hadn't made any money from China and that Biden hadn't met one of Hunter's Ukrainian business associates while he was vice president, uh, except for maybe a brief hello. Uh, apparently, both of those claims were proven false, according to sworn testimony by Hunter Biden himself and his business partner, Devin Archer, before the committee. And in federal court this July, uh, Hunter Biden acknowledged that he was paid several hundreds of thousands of dollars through partnerships and business dealings with Chinese firms in 2017 and 2018. House Republican leaders now are zeroing in on these two denials by Biden to help justify uh, their impeachment inquiry. However, the investigations have not uncovered any direct evidence that Biden personally profited from his son's uh, foreign work. And that now is going to be their focus, and they feel that there's enough circumstantial evidence that they feel that they will find uh, that that evidence. Uh, but as I just mentioned, I mean, it's, it comes at a terrible time because the White House is not really is going to be less inclined to work with McCarthy, and Democrats are less likely uh, to throw him a lifeline. Uh, and I do think that you know the genie is out of the bottle on this thing, right? So that um, you know, once you open an inquiry, and if you fail to follow through. This will be a major boon to Biden because it essentially makes him look that he was innocent, uh, that they didn't find anything. Uh, and I think that at the end, McCarthy may use that argument to squeeze the moderates who, who uh, right now don't see any evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors to back impeachment later on. Uh, and I think that, you know, it, it, we're not going to see that vote anytime soon, but I think that there's going to be tremendous pressure on them and and also pressure from the right. These guys have to worry about primaries. And Donald Trump is beating this drum of impeachment very, very hard. Uh, so I think we're you know, going in now to the end of this month with really a triumvirate of, of disasters, you know, not being able to pass a defense bill, a looming shutdown uh, and now an impeachment of our commander in chief. Michael, uh, thanks very much, Jim. Uh, I'm going to go to you because there's a lot of uh, Ukraine news. Jim, uh, thanks very much for your uh, patience. Uh, the, the, the Ukrainian offensive really uh, has been gaining uh, momentum and there have been an extraordinary series of strikes that the uh, uh, Ukrainians have been making deep into Crimea, deep into uh, Russian uh, territory or, or I should say occupied territory. Um, break down what it is they're doing and what it is that they're doing could actually prove to be remarkably game changing in this conflict. Well, I, I tell you, uh, Vago, it's been fascinating to watch this unfold night after night after night uh, here in Washington. We can wake up in the morning to video coming out off of uh, social media showing these targets flaming uh, in, in Crimea. And I, I think one of the most interesting uh, in terms of having an impact was when the uh, Ukrainians were able to hit the shipyard uh, and destroy a submarine, uh, Kilo class, as well as an amphib. Uh, while Kim and Putin were meeting. So you can imagine how embarrassing that must have been for Putin 
uh, to be handed a note in the middle of his meeting with with uh, the North Korean uh, leader and uh, say, well, I guess we've lost two ships, two capital ships, uh, as well as damaging a very important part of the logistics for the Russia, which is that uh, the shipyard and the dry docks. So it's it is something that is uh, is is playing out in a more rapid pace. And there's there's a couple things that that are that are we have to take into account here. Number one is that the Ukraine offensive is not just land based. It's also this sea base that's happening as well. Uh, the two um, uh, derricks that were out there in the Black Sea that the uh, Ukrainian commandos took that were being used as radar installations. Uh, the commando raid that was made on uh, on Crimea that destroyed, I think, a big uh, radar site, an S-400 that was destroyed. Uh, we talked about these ships already. There's a lot that is happening uh, done by the Ukraine Navy, making sure that the uh, this uh, offensive line is not just those three avenues of direction uh, that are being undertaken on land, but also on the sea. This is making the Russians send to Crimea uh, air defense uh, systems and other aspects of equipment that would have been better used on the front line in Ukraine. And now it's going to have to be sent to protect a lot of installations, the logistics base that uh, the Russians have built in uh, Crimea. Uh, so it's really quite uh, strategic in terms of how that impacts the battlefield in terms of the, the land portion of the offensive. This is this naval offensive is more than just pinpricks. Uh, this is strategic. It's impacting uh, also the logistics. Uh, you know, this was a safe haven for the Russians in terms of logistic support for their land operations. And uh, right now, it's impossible for a Russian leader to be convinced or confident that their logistics setup that they've built over the years uh, since 2014, that their logistics are um, not going to be attacked, that in fact they're vulnerable there. So it's a uh, it's it's quite a. Um, you know, it's quite a turn. And I think uh, we're going to see the impact on the battlefield. It'll be felt there in terms of logistics, in terms of, of air defense systems that won't be there. Uh, and in terms of shortages of shells and this type of thing that the Russians absolutely depend on in terms of their artillery attacks against Ukrainian sappers going in and taking out those landmines. So it's quite an event to watch this. And the final point, I'm sorry I'm going on so long, Vago, uh, but the final point is this. There's a psychological aspect here, too. I mentioned that uh, Putin had certainly was embarrassed to have this happen while he was meeting with Kim. Uh, and uh, and it's showing, again, the, the, the Russian people that they are vulnerable. It's showing and embarrassing the Russian military that they can't seem to 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 uh, to be effective to hold back these uh, these attacks by both missiles as well as drones. Right. Uh, and it shows finally that the Ukrainians have figured out how to get through that air defense. <laughs> uh, and that is fascinating, too. And I'm sure there's there are intel people know where those gaps are. And I think Ukraine has found that out, too. Um, and uh, really, it's been uh, some uh, very uh, interesting meetings, and we're going to be rolling this uh, coverage out as I've had the opportunity to uh, conduct a couple of interviews here uh, about non-kinetic, or or I should say, you know, both uh, kinetic and non-kinetic directed energy jamming systems uh, that have been uh, on display here, as as well as uh, you know, one one of those companies is a Polish company that's called APS uh, that is uh, absolutely stunning, and we have an interview with its uh, founder and chief executive that we'll have uh, a little bit uh, down uh, the line. Um, is there a sense, uh, though, I mean, one of the things that I picked up here from uh, my uh, off-the-record conversations with a lot of uh, remarkably senior leaders, uh, as well as on-the-record discussions, that the, the Russians have a tendency of, uh, you know, you know, it's, as uh, several put it, you know, they, they lose the first battle, they lose the second battle, but eventually they win the war because they adapt, they're willing to throw people into the breach in order to do it, as we've seen, uh, you know, right, the Russians may have taken 300,000 or more casualties. Well, unfortunately, the Ukrainians have taken 200,000 casualties and, and Russia is multiple times uh, larger at 144 million people than, than Ukraine, which is which is now probably closer to the mid 30s uh, than where it was at 44 million or so uh, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, like before this invasion started from from your standpoint. What is it that you're picking up from the Russians and the way the Russians are executing and how the Russians actually could come back? Because there is a sense that 
Western support for Ukraine is faltering. Uh, it, it's just the sense, uh, but it, it may be erroneous, right? I mean, here it's still very strong and there's a large Ukrainian contingent and delegation here. And so everything about this is 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 about it. But it, I mean, give, give me a sense on both on the where, where we are with the Russians and whether or not you see from your uh, NATO friends any weakening uh, of, of support uh, for the Ukrainians ultimately across the alliance. You know, I, I think it, it's funny, uh, but what I've been able to pick up in terms of weakening of support for uh, for Ukraine, I don't think uh, you see that weakening so much in Europe as you do in the United States, or at least we're we're more vocal about it than in Europe. But it seems as I've talked to Europeans that their concern isn't so much support for Ukraine as much as the U.S. and where the U.S. is going. And their fear that they're going to be left alone if something happens in the U.S. Right. political scene uh, that will have uh, Donald Trump come back or uh, or U.S. assistance to Ukraine cut. So their concern uh, is not so much, uh, you know, Ukraine and getting wobbly about Ukraine itself and supporting Ukraine. Their concern is with the United States. Uh, and so I I my feeling is and, and this gets back to what we were just talking about in terms of what the Ukraine Navy has been doing. Um, the, the, the fight that the Ukraine military has in them is extraordinary. I mean, we just saw what the Ukraine Navy has been doing. I don't understand why in the U.S. Uh, and in, in, the, in, the, in the Republican Party and the House of Representatives and in, in a lot of the American people that are being polled, they're not getting the message from the administration that this offensive is actually, as sure, it's going slow, but it's having an impact. And it's, it could right. very well be speeding up. And so so in terms of support for Ukraine, it's really a, a problem that we have in this country in terms of how this is being presented to the American people and to, and to Capitol Hill. I, I just we say this on this broadcast over and over and over again, that they're just the mess coming out of the administration is not what it needs to be. Uh, and uh, and I think we've had some successes over the past couple of days that are not appreciated or understood. And someone needs to put it into that that context. So so wobbliness in Europe, I don't see it as wobbly there as I see it in the United States and for all the wrong reasons. So uh, so that's that point on on Russia. Uh, you're right about the, that saying about Russia that they might lose the first couple of battles, but they adapt and pretty much they bring their mass uh, to the fore, you know, and uh, just overwhelm whoever they are fighting with, whether it's the French or whether it's the Germans or wh whoever it might be. I think that makes a sense that there's a clock ticking here where we don't want Russia to reach that stage. Uh, right now, Putin is still concerned about domestic implications if he were to have a generalized call up. I'm hearing that, in fact, they're doing that quietly. Uh, they are sending more of, of trying to get more contract soldiers down into, in, down into Ukraine. But that doesn't mean they're well trained. That doesn't mean they're well equipped, at least certainly not at this stage. It doesn't mean they're being well led. Uh, and so um, and that doesn't mean they're having high morale and, and they've got the fight in their belly as well. So it's right. a substandard mass right now that they have in Russia. Uh, but you cannot underestimate Russia. Uh, we've seen uh, what history has shown us. And, and Vago, you, you certainly mentioned that. So I think there is a bit of a clock ticking for uh, for some uh for Russia to be severely weakened on the battlefield as much as we can, certainly before the, the winter sets in. Uh, but, uh, but that is something that makes everyone nervous. And we just have to help Ukraine keep pushing forward as fast as we can and, and just uh, hope that what we see in terms of a pipeline of, of people and um, armaments coming from Russia into Ukraine, that that is, that is uh, as weak as it has been uh, so that Ukraine can push, push past it and try to regain a lot of their territory. Jim, I want to uh, get your sense uh, on one point, and Dove, I want to get your sense uh, on this well, as well in a moment. I mean, polls uh, are, of the American people are showing that they think President Biden is not doing a good job on foreign policy. So not only is the president polling weekly uh, on the economy, even though the economy is doing better, uh, you know, overall by an order of magnitude uh, from from where it was uh, a couple of years ago, certainly in the wake of the pandemic, uh, but certainly, you know, even on foreign policy, where on this program, 
uh, every week we talk, I think, in a pretty bipartisan fashion about the enormous progress the administration has been making to bring allies and partners together to stand up to Ukraine, uh, to uh, you know build these alliance networks that Patrick every week talks to us and he's going to give us another kind of update on it. From your perspective, you know, you said the administration should be better doing doing a better job on messaging. What is it the administration should be doing to message that that in many of these cases, you know, they, they are actually doing a remarkably competent job across the the piece? Well, you know, I I would say in terms of their economic message, uh, their uh, message on dom- all the various domestic issues and this type of thing. Uh, there is a good news story there, and I will uh, leave it to others who are the, on the, the political bandwagon to talk about why that message doesn't seem to be penetrating. There have been a lot of very good writing over the past week or so in the New York Times, particularly, uh, talking about this phenomena in terms of how the Biden administration is having a hard time getting its successes out there. And certainly Biden and his team have been out crisscrossing the U.S., uh, having town halls and trying to talk about this. Pete Buttigieg has been doing that. Um, uh, Tony uh, Tony um, Blinken gave the speech at SICE a couple of days ago talking about foreign policy and this type of thing. It was a, pretty much a purely political speech, but he was trying to lay that out. So, I mean, so they're working on that and, 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 I, and we'll see how well that goes down if they can get some of those poll numbers turned around. But I think what I'm really concerned about is the message on Ukraine in terms of this offensive, uh, in terms of what Ukraine is trying to do, in terms of what we're trying to do and the West is trying to do with the assistance. I mean, you know, we can we we we, we I think we need to better put into context how Ukraine is fighting this war and using this equipment uh, and, and how they are making gains here. Uh, I don't want to be Pollyanna here. I, I have said on the show many times it's been pick and shovel work trying to get through those obstacles. It's been bloody. Uh, and they've had their couple of their couple of times their hand tied behind their back because we haven't been giving them the right equipment at the right speed. But they've been they've been doing this. Uh, and I think I think that's the message I feel hasn't been received by the American people and probably the media as well, which is you look at this more strategically in terms of what Ukraine is doing. Um, look at history in terms of how these things unfold. Uh, in terms of dealing with uh, dug-in defensive positions like the Russians have. There's a story here that that there there needs to be uh, some education done in terms of how you look on this offensive. Otherwise, the the, the, uh, narrative is going to be captured by those who are trying to present Ukraine as faltering, failing, this isn't working, we're wasting our money, they're not using the equipment, we've been training them wrong, blah, all this stuff. I think there's another story out there in terms of how they're using it and some of the successes. Uh, and it hasn't been presented very well, if at all. Uh, if you read the New York Times and you track this the way most of us do day by day, you can see it. But someone needs to put together a comprehensive, cohesive picture or a narrative and present it to the American people at a very senior level and say, let's look at this. You know, it's like an FDR fireside chat. I mean, something's got to be done. Uh, before this this uh, erroneous narrative that things are going horribly there, if we're going to turn that around, we got to make sure the truth is out there in terms of how this thing is going. And I just wish the administration would turn its attention to that. I completely agree with you. It's just unclear, uh, you know, who exactly delivers that message, right? I mean, if a lot of this is being laid at the president's feet, it's problematic. And I think what's particularly problematic is some of these strains and messages are actually coming out of the Pentagon. Uh, or or someplace else in the administration that well you know the offensive isn't going well and 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 what have you which which tends to to undermine that kind of unity of 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 messaging uh, that you need on this you know that is encouraging as opposed to the Ukrainians having to put a, t- a tweet out saying we really appreciate you know our the, the interest of our friends uh, and, you know our allies and partners but we know how to fight this war better than any of you do so thanks very much for your uh, criticism. Well, I mean that—that's exactly right. Uh, this is this has been one of the more frustrating things for me. Is—is uh, is watching these leaks, listening to these leaks come out of various parts of the administration, uh, and trying to figure out who is doing the leaking. What are they trying to do here? Uh, and uh, particularly when a leak comes out and then it's contradicted the next week by another senior official saying, "No, that's wrong. It's this." this. Uh, so I—I—I I, uh, I, I guess that's just symptoms of splits within the administration probably night fights within the administration. And this is just symptoms of that happening, happening behind the scenes. 
But uh, I do wish they could get their act together and give us a coherent narrative that's, that, that begins getting people thinking about what's happening there in a different, different way than, oh, this offensive is bogged down. It's just, it's just not doing any, anyone any favors. Well, Vago, in terms of messaging and leaks and that type of thing, um, you know, we have to keep in mind that the big message is going to be delivered at the Washington Summit, which will be this summer coming up. There is going to be a lot of pressure on the administration to come up with some big super deliverables uh, because it's going to be in the middle of the presidential campaign. Biden wants to have a, a uh, shiny NATO summit that's full of goodies for everyone. Uh, and I think one of the goodies that there's going to be a lot of expectations about is Ukraine membership in NATO. Is that going to be the big gift that comes out of the NATO summit uh, to really have the shine the light on the, Bi the Biden administration and, and the, a future presidency? But I can tell you there is not any kind of unity on that yet that I've seen. And I know the administration is is not looking forward to doing that. So I, I, I think as our show goes on in the coming months, we should really begin to pay attention to the deliverables for that summit, what that summit's going to look like, and how will Ukrainian membership in NATO play in terms of deliverables for that summit. Dove, I want to get to uh, your piece uh, that appeared today uh, in The Hill on the Putin uh, and uh, Kim uh, meeting. Uh, but do you think actually uh, with the earthquake in Morocco, as well as uh, the devastating flood uh, in uh, Libya, many, many thousands dead uh, in, you know, more than 2000 dead in Morocco uh, and then, you know, thousands, more than 5000 uh, in Libya. And the, and the toll could be even higher in that uh, in, in the flooding from your standpoint, why is that such an important issue that folks in Washington have to be focused on, aside from the humanitarian component? Well, Morocco, first of all, they've lost close to 3,000 now and more than 5,000 injured. It's all in the area around Marrakesh, which is a major tourist area for Morocco, where a lot of Americans go. Um, but Morocco uh, is a close American ally, and they're, they work with us in the fight against terrorism. Uh, in the Sahel, uh, and they've been very supportive of the United States in putting together the Abraham Accords. And right now, they are totally devastated. They're not accepting a lot of aid from a lot of countries. They have from some, like Britain and Spain, not really yet from the United States, but for obvious reasons, uh, they're totally preoccupied, and, and that's a concern for us. I mean, they are a close ally. Libya is a completely different story. They've actually lost more than 20,000 people uh, because two dams broke in the city of Derna. Derna is under the control of the rebel general uh, Khalifa Haftar, uh, which the United States doesn't support. We support the, uh, the, the United Nations recognized government, which is in Tripoli. And it's just another example of, of the chaos that's taking place in Libya. And of course, the Egyptians who are right next door are terrified that that spills over to them. And the last thing we need is trouble in Egypt. So it's a, a, certainly a humanitarian issue, but it's also for us a strategic issue because we're focused on Ukraine and on China. Uh, and uh, here you have these other potential troubles in an area that we're trying to pay a little bit less attention to. And, and let's really quickly talk about your Putin uh, and Kim piece, but also uh, about the economic corridor that you uh, wrote about as well. The Putin-Kim meeting uh, may or may not lead to uh, anything truly substantive. It's highly transactional. My worry is simply that it reflects the fact that these bad guys work together. Uh, Kim will be supplying Putin with arms despite United Nations Security Council resolutions. Putin needs those arms to continue fighting in Ukraine. Uh, Putin will uh, will probably be helping Kim to develop uh, a, a satellite-based capability that's clearly aimed at us. Uh, they both have a relationship with Xi, Xi in China. They both have a relationship with Iran. And my concern is that we still are, for better or for worse, and I would argue worse, have a strategy that goes back to the early Clinton years called win-hold-win, the idea being uh, we win one battle and hold off right. uh, any second adversary, and that's ridiculous. They're not going to wait for us to win one battle, and uh, quite frankly, uh, if we were confr confronted with two or even three major concerns, 
say, North Korea, China and Ukraine or Russia, uh, we would have a major problem. And the only way we can deal with that uh, is first get our allies to really spend the money they've said they're going to spend. Second of all, to get the, the administration to uh, put more money into the budget, not to uh, play around with uh, uh excessively low inflation levels that mean we're going to really be spending less. And third, going back to what Michael has just said, getting Congress to uh, stop acting idiotically and fund these programs when the Defense Department asks for them. Uh, Patrick, you've been very patient and uh, much appreciated, but it was uh, a very big week, uh, obviously, in Asia. I want to start with uh, the G20. What did the Biden administration achieve and not achieve uh, from the president, uh, as well as the vice president, Asian uh, diplomacy at the G20 in Vietnam, as well as ASEAN? Because this has really been uh, a full court press uh, from the administration. Indeed, to get both the president and the vice president covering the Indo-Pacific uh, in the space of a couple of weeks is uh, unprecedented, I think. Um, the G20 meeting was obviously a huge success for Prime Minister Modi. And in that, uh, the U.S. was very much facilitating his uh, ascendant position on the stage because the G20 here was becoming a, a much more important strategic forum that would essentially bridge the gap between the rich countries, especially the United States, and the global south, starting with India, but also with the next two chairs of the G20, Brazil, South Africa, and then the U.S. is going to be chairing uh, the G20 uh, in the third year. So um, a, a big opportunity here to provide an alternative to Xi, as he was not there. Uh, Xi Jinping of China was, of course, recently in South Africa for the BRICS summit. He was trying to expand to the Gulf countries and a few other countries. Um, but at the same time, uh, not showing up at ASEAN, not showing up at the G20, here was a, a chance for the American president, working closely with Modi and others, to uh, put forward an initiative to uh, reshape and expand the World Bank. So that's an inclusive international financial banking system that the U.S. helped to create. Um, so this is not a separate block that uh, the Chinese like to criticize our, our small sort of cliques and blocks. Um, but this is actually a global institution that China's part of. And um, so really uh, well played here by the administration to do this. They obviously have a lot of follow-up. Um, and at the same time, uh, President Biden was able to meet bilaterally with uh, Prime Minister Modi and reaffirm everything that they discussed uh, during uh, Prime Minister Modi's state visit recently, uh, including uh, the significant defense projects that are uh, you know, have momentum and and really, uh, you know, this is a, a relationship that is growing fast. So that was great. In Vietnam, where the president went next, he went to another country bordering China, uh, and they were able to announce the uh, leapfrogging of a, a stage uh, of a relations to go from a comprehensive partnership that they've been at for 10 years to a, a comprehensive strategic partnership, um, which is the highest uh, sort of level you can in Vietnam, which is significant for opening up all the doors for cooperating on defense and technology. Clearly, Vietnam is motivated by the desire to be an Asian tiger. Um, they see the, the leap here from going from manufacturing into artificial intelligence, semiconductors. They, they're watching uh, India uh, with semiconductors. So they really want to make this leap, and they know the U.S. technology is going to be critical. Uh, there's a huge educational component of this for uh, educating engineers and the industries that were there were met by all of the top Vietnamese uh, commercial uh, figures. Um, so there's, there's great aspirations here on the economic side. The military side was more muted in terms of wasn't discussed, but that's partly because Vietnam uh, always knows how to play uh, the Chinese here of not provoking them, not uh, you know, getting along with them, but but resisting. Um, that's the history of Vietnam's relationship with China. Right. Um, and it's working very well here. Um, and then ASEAN, uh, where the vice president went, although it was disappointing at first that the president would not be attending ASEAN because this was uh, the Labor Day uh, weekend and he was doing politics and uh, also too many trips to Asia at one, one go in September. Um, but she did a uh, credible job uh, and uh, had a great meeting with uh, President Marcos of uh, the Philippines uh, and uh, Prime Minister Kishida in a trilateral show of force. Um, great meeting with Prime Minister uh, with uh, President Jokowi of Indonesia, the host of the of the ASEAN meetings, uh, and he's going to be coming to a bilateral with President Biden. 
just before going to San Francisco for the APEC summit in November. Nice. So they can recoup a lot of these uh, uh, sort of foreign policy gains uh, in Southeast Asia and across the Indo-Pacific from these three trips. And meanwhile, where is Xi Jinping? You know, what, what's he doing? We know that uh, Wang Yi is going to be going to Russia next week, but that's a separate story. I want to go to Wang Yi's uh, visit, as well as uh, the Putin-Kim uh, uh, summit, as well as some of the other action that happened in uh, Asia uh, regarding Taiwan's uh, defense paper, as well as uh, both uh, Japan's and South Korea's uh, defense ministers uh, being replaced. Uh, but, but just really quickly, Narendra Modi is sort of picturing this as, um, hey, for uh, the you know, countries, uh, you know, in the world, we could become uh, the interlocutor with America, you know, that we have a unique uh, role. Was was this G20 sort of marking that uh, in, in your mind? Well, it was. I mean, the G20 was created because the G7 was seen to be, you know, a small elite club of, of some rich countries and it needed to expand. Um, and uh, especially in the failure of a, a Doha round, that is the failure to kind of expand the World Trade Organization's liberalization to uh, emerging markets. And now you have a revitalized G20 in many ways with India's leadership at this meeting that looks like, yeah, the G20 can play that role and India in particular can be that leading broker that is the bridge between the global South and the rich OECD countries. So uh, exactly where Modi wants to be um, and uh, also just uh, congruently very much supportive of US policy needing to show that we can reach out to the global south where we seem to be losing ground uh, and I just want to point out that one of the reasons also the president came back, you know, when you said that for political reasons was in part to be on American soil for uh, the 9-11 anniversary. And he stopped in uh, Anchorage uh, to celebrate it. And there was some criticism uh, from uh, from some quarters uh, why why he, he was not in Washington for that. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, what uh, some major uh, we've seen some major headlines on, which is the Putin Kim uh, meeting uh, and certainly uh, an expectation that what they were at. And I mean, they made it clear that this was uh, about uh, North Korea providing uh, weapons. Uh, Dove uh, wrote a piece on this on Winhold Win uh, in the Messenger, and, and you in the Messenger also wrote uh, that this was uh, a um, uh, a misfire, uh, no, uh, uh, pun or no pun intended. Uh, what did that meeting achieve, and what is it we expect Wang Yi is going to be discussing in Moscow next week? Yeah, I, I, my argument was that uh, it was a failure to launch, and that was a failure to launch. I'm sorry, it, I'm sorry. That's right. No, no, That's no. Right. Sorry. It, it was a, a triple entendre in the sense that um, you know Russia failed to to make the moon landing. Meanwhile, North Korea has failed its last military reconnaissance satellite launch, um, and they've also tried to build this relationship up in the past, and yet it's also faltered. Uh, and so once again, um, they're going to try again. The theatrics look good because the uh, you know the, the the lumbering train all the way into the Russian Far East and going to the uh, the Cosmodrome. Uh, you know, it this is something that uh, serves the interests of Putin and Kim very well. And so this is about a, a transactional relationship above and you know everything else. Um, so forget the theater. It's Putin needing arms to prosecute the war in Ukraine because he doesn't want to lose. Um, and if he sticks around in that war, he's thinking maybe he can win, presumably, or at least not lose. Um, and I and so now his uh, de facto munitions uh, minister is Kim Jong Un, who's stepping up and saying, "Well, yeah, we do have munitions uh, that can suit your purposes. They may or may not fire well, but <laughs> he's not saying that. But uh, you know, their their record is spotty, but they 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 are compatible with Russian systems." Um, and uh, he's ready to, to turn on uh, the munitions. In exchange, he wanted to visit the Cosmodrome. And, and Putin made this very clear that he wanted to help North Korea with its space uh, ambitions. And that uh, it was Kim who really wanted to go see the, the space launch uh, platform um, where they you know, launched Soyuz uh, satellites and other platforms. And so he was, um, you know, there's an exchange here. This is a quid pro quo. It may go deeper than this. It may go into uh, aircraft. He also visited a uh, place where they visit the Sukhoi fighter factory. Um, he visits Vladivostok as well for the for the naval right. port. Um, and it may be that Kim is eyeing even a triad, a nuclear triad in his dreams, because as you recall, we, he did launch that um, sort of converted Romeo submarine with an uh, SLB uh, submarine launch ballistic missile uh, capability in theory. Uh, if he could get an aircraft that 
that could fire uh, tactical nuclear right. weapons, such as those that have gone to Belarus, this could be uh, something that would allow him to say, I'm a big nuclear power, just like uh, China and the United States and Russia. So that's the relationship. And now Putin's agreed, apparently, to go to Pyongyang to visit uh, Kim. But again, if you're going to be relying very heavily on his munitions, uh, he has now a good reason to visit. This was Kim's first trip outside of uh, North Korea in four years, and he did take a train. But he did fly by plane within Russian uh, space uh, for a short distance, which is uh, significant and interesting. Um because he is trying to possibly turn his sights toward uh, building an air force, uh, which is uh, archaic and, and a relic of the past. But he doesn't have the money for all of these programs. And right. neither, neither Putin nor Kim have, uh, has a, an economic strategy. And that's the real weakness. That's why this is a failure to launch. They, they really, this is a military first policy for both of them. Um, and uh, Wang, the, Wang Yi, yeah, Wang yeah, Yi. Go ahead. So, so Wang Yi is, uh, is, is checking in <laughs> this next week in Russia. You can be sure that privately he wants to make sure China knows exactly what's going on um, and wants to control the situation and does not want it to get out of hand and hurt uh, Chinese interests. Uh, publicly, just like the train trip, uh, I'm sure it's going to be all golden, uh, sort of, uh, you know, great relations among these three countries. These countries are building the future. They're fighting the imperialists. Um, right. And, and uh, you know, we can expect all of those things uh, rhetorically Although Wang Yi is never much to smile, or, or you know, he's not he's not much uh, uh, for uh, that kind of public fanfare. But he will he will spin this uh, for publicity. But at the same time, privately, it would be very interesting to know what the Chinese are really tracking uh, as they are watching Putin and Kim very closely. Um, uh, and uh, why on earth did uh, Japan and South Korea both replace their defense ministers back to back? Well, for domestic political reasons, but very different ones. Um, so, you know, Kishida is getting ready to call a, a snap election, uh, and he wanted to uh, mix up the factions uh, who are represented in his cabinet. Um, that's the only reason he, uh, you know, he replaced a very successful foreign minister, Hayashi, who had just visited uh, uh, Ukraine, um, but also Hamada, the defense minister. Uh, who was uh, a lower profile, but was doing a very good job as well. Uh, and now he's brought in a former justice minister to be the new foreign minister, a, a woman, um, uh, Kanikawa. And uh, uh, Kino, uh, uh, Kinoru is the uh, National Security Committee representative or head for the Liberal Democratic Party. And he's being elevated to be uh, the new defense minister in Japan. Uh, he He's, among other things, on the Taiwan um, sort of caucus uh, in Japan. So he's seen as uh, quite hawkish, if you will, and very much in line with the current policy. So no policy change there. This is about electoral politics in Japan. For Korea, it was a different situation for um, President uh, Yoon. Um, very good defense minister, Lee Jong-suk, uh, ran afoul of an investigation into the death of a young Marine. Um, he was seen as possibly uh, interfering with it um, and was going to be impeached. So he, he had to resign. And uh, Lieutenant General Shin Wan-sik, who's been in the parliament these last seven years since he retired, former vice chief of their Joint Chiefs of Staff, very controversial conservative. He is, among other things, said, you know, Moon Jae-in is a traitor, the, the last president. Right. Uh, he said it as a politician, though, not as a general. Um, but he is seen as uh, uh, very hawkish um, and he's talked about um, uh, basically forceful unification. So he's certainly going to be a tough guy to have in place. Right. Uh, to, to send messages to Pyongyang. Uh, and let me ask you uh, one last question. Uh, new uh, strategic white paper uh, by Taiwan. As I mentioned, I'm at the DSCI uh, trade show uh, in London and a lot of talk about the Indo-Pacific and, and some of the things that uh, Taiwan is interested in to increase uh, its military capabilities. What does this white paper mean uh, ultimately? Well, it shows that they're getting the message about needing to adopt an asymmetric defense uh, force. Uh, and, uh, for instance, they're talking about producing 7,700 drones by 2027. That sounds very uh, sort of reminiscent of uh, Deputy Secretary Kath Hicks's recent discussion about the Replicator Initiative uh, on uh, mass-produced drones. Um, she, uh, they also talk about the uh, fact that they're really counting on Japan and the Philippines, not just the United States, for support in their defense, and they're not planning to cede any territory. So they're really serious about their territorial defense. By the way, in public this past week, separate from this biennial defense white paper, you had Elon Musk 
making the crack about uh, the Chinese look at uh, Taiwan uh, as their Hawaii. And um, the Taiwan government was uh, took some umbrage at this and said, uh, we're not for sale. Um, but all of this is going to be, of course, uh, overtaken by the January election. And next May, we're going to have a new president in Taiwan. Uh, but it, but if it is the DPP party's continuation in power, it's likely to continue to be the defense policy of the next administration as well. And Patrick, you had one thing you wanted to add? I'm heading to the first inaugural uh, Incheon Security Conference, marking the 73rd anniversary of the Incheon amphibious landing, which occurred 73 years ago, this very hour as we recorded uh, this segment. And um, it's uh, important to remember both uh, how we were able to be risk-taking and innovative in, in war and to regain the initiative in the Korean War, but also to remember that just because you win a battle doesn't mean you win the war. So we have a lot of lessons to learn from history as well as from the Ukraine war, and we're going to be talking about these things in Korea next week. Uh, indeed. Absolutely fascinating, uh, Patrick, and we look forward to having a recap with you uh, when you're back. Thanks so very much, and bon voyage. Thank you. Dove, your take? Well, uh I believe Patrick has uh, talked a little uh, talked about the uh, uh, G20 among the many things that he mentioned, and, and he's right that this is a huge triumph for India. Uh, I just want to mention a couple of other things. Uh, India, uh, Mr. Modi got his way on getting the African Union uh, into the G20, which is a big deal. Uh, but an even bigger deal, if it happens, is this thing called IMEC, the India Middle East European economic corridor and what this is it's quite remarkable if they can pull it off is a sea line from india to uh the united arab emirates to dubai and jebel ali then overland saudi arabia uh jordan and then israel and then haifa becomes the next point of a sea line to piraeus in greece and then on to europe now what this this does a number of things i mean first of all it's going to speed up trade but second of all, it's essentially uh, an attempt to totally out, outshine the Chinese Belt and Road, which is having troubles anyway. Um, and uh, what's very also very important uh, is that Saudi Arabia said they're going to kick in $20 billion to make this happen. It'll probably cost a heck of a lot more than that. And Saudi Arabia is going to be part of a line that goes through Israel. Now, Mr. Netanyahu thinks that that means that the, they're going to jump into the Abraham Accords. I have my doubts. Uh, the king of Saudi Arabia, King Salman, is still insisting the Palestinians get their due. Um, but nevertheless, this is a major step forward, whether or not they recognize Israel. On the other hand, and this is a big headache, the Turks are furious. Uh, Erdogan, the next day after the announcement at the G20, Erdogan said, you can't have this without Turkey. And given that uh, the Turks uh, are already uh, uneasy with the United States, they haven't gotten their F-16s, Mr. Erdogan still talks to Mr. Putin, this is going to add salt to their wound, and it's not at all clear how that'll play out. Everybody, thanks so very much for uh, meeting us for a very full uh, show. Uh, hope you guys have a terrific weekend and a terrific week and look forward to uh, having you back on again uh, next week. And thanks to our audience for joining us. And a very special thanks uh, to Bill for their generous sponsorship that makes this program uh, possible. Hope everybody has a great weekend and look forward uh, to having you join us uh, for the Business Roundtable on Sunday. Thanks very much and have a great day.